Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wartum Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Larmasa. Our guest today is David Poritz, co-founder and co-CEO of Credit Justo, a company focused on lending to the underserved and rapidly growing small and medium-sized enterprise market in Mexico. Since inception, Credit Justo has secured almost $60 million of equity and $200 million in debt facilities from a world-class group of institutional investors, including Goldman Sachs, Credit Suisse, QED Investors, Point72 Ventures, Kazakh Ventures, Broadhaven Ventures, and many, many more. David was a Rhodes Scholar at the University of Oxford and holds an undergraduate degree from Brown University, where he was a Harry Truman Scholar. And now please join me in a fascinating chat with David Poritz. All right, David. Well, thank you for joining us on the Wharton Fintech Podcast. We are very excited to have you here. Uh, we're happy you joined us. Can we start by hearing a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure, absolutely. Well, it's, uh, it's wonderful to be here and love to talk about these issues that we're passionate about and excited about at Credit Justo. Uh, so my background, I'm originally not from Latin America. However, most of my career has been spent in Latin America. I grew up in the Northeast, originally from Massachusetts. I studied in the U.S. However, throughout my elementary and middle and high school, found myself spending most of my free time in Latin America. So I lived for many years in Colombia, Ecuador, and Peru, and also Mexico. And although I was not at that point involved in fintech or financial technology initiatives, I had and developed a strong affinity uh, with the region. And from a very early age, it was clear to me the potential that Latin America had as a neighbor of the United States, but a region that perhaps had been overlooked for such a long time. So after, uh, after completing college, I, went, I did my undergrad at Brown University, which is where I met Alan Apog, who's the other co-founder and co-CEO of Credit Justo. Alan originally was from Mexico City and grew up in Mexico. So we very quickly developed a friendship, partially built around our shared interests in the Latin American region. And upon graduating, Alan returned to Mexico City, uh, began working locally in Mexico in private equity. I spent a few years studying in the UK at Oxford. And this was right around the time when I'm sure many of the audience remembers when fintech was really starting to emerge and develop in the US and the UK. You had kind of what I would call like the first wave. You had, you know, Lending Club and Prosper and Cabbage and Funding Circle and a lot of these peer-to-peer technology-enabled models that at that point in time were mostly focused on uh, more developed ecosystems like the United States, the UK, and other European countries. So it was at that point in time that you know I was just finishing my studies, Alan was working in Mexico, that it became very, very clear to us that the benefits and the potential that fintech was showing in the United States and Europe that we could take a lot of those critical elements and apply that to the emerging markets and specifically to Latin America. That's exciting. Now, you definitely have a non-traditional background for someone from the East Coast. What got you interested in Latin America in the first place? You mentioned you visited throughout your childhood and teen years. Uh, Was this something from your family? Was this uh, your own interest? How did this develop? 
Yeah, absolutely. So as I mentioned, my initial exposure to Latin America was not through necessarily fintech. It wasn't, I don't think it was a concept that existed you know, in the early, in the early 2000s. Uh, but my, so my initial exposure to Latin America was much more geared in the nonprofit space. So I, it's, it's a joke, but you know, I, I studied anthropology and history and Latin American studies. So I have no business running a fintech <laughs> company, given that you know, my background is not necessarily in finance. And initially, I was passionate and continue to be very passionate about you know, issues of human rights and specifically energy and natural resource development. So in 2008, I started a nonprofit called Equitable Origin, which developed the first environmental, social, and safety standards for the oil, gas, and renewables energy, the renewable sectors. And basically, we saw that there was this immense overlap between natural resource development, indigenous communities, and sensitive ecosystems such as the Amazon rainforest. And we realized that there was a really unique opportunity to work with companies and work with governments and work with communities in order to find ways to ensure better, more responsible outcomes. So we basically developed the first standards for these industries. And it happened that Latin America was the focus of where we spent and continue to spend most of the organization's time. So Peru, Ecuador, Colombia, Bolivia, a little bit, Mexico, and increasingly the U.S. and Canada. So my original interest in Latin America was much more from a human rights kind of corporate social responsibility point of view. Then I spent a couple of years doing my master's and that was right when I used it as an opportunity to explore new opportunities and to kind of spread my, open up my horizons. And that's where financial inclusion and financial technology became a thematic area that really fascinated me. That's, that's very cool. I would love to hear how your background has impacted the way you run the company. But before we go there, let's go back to you mentioning you saw that there was this wave of initial fintechs actually becoming quite large and successful in the US and Europe at the same time. When you decided to launch Houston in, in Mexico, Basically, there was almost nothing in fintech in the country, right? I mean, now the situation 2020 is very different. There's a wave. But when you started, uh, that wasn't the case. Uh, tell us about your initial days. It's been a fascinating evolution that we feel like we've lived. I would describe Credit Husto as part of the first cohort of successful fintech businesses or successful fintech companies that has emerged out of Mexico. So ex-Brazil, so excluding Brazil, <laughs> I believe that, you know, the Spanish-speaking Latin America was kind of like a desert for venture capital, institutional capital, you know, up until, you know, I don't know, 2014, 15, 16. So it wasn't until very, very recently that fintech and just entrepreneurs generally in the venture back space were able to raise institutional capital. So Brazil is a little bit of a different story. And I know you've had a guest who represent kind of Brazil as a geography. I think it's an ecosystem because of its size that's been recognized for a longer period of time in terms of, you know, a lot of institutional venture capital funds have had a presence there. Mexico has really, ironically, it's on the border of the United States. It shares the southern border with the U.S., but it's been a geography that for so many years has not been the focus. And we 
you know, we've raised uh, to date around, you know, $320 million. And almost for all of our investors, we were their first exposure to Mexico, which I think is really, really interesting. So, you know, our first investor was John Mack, the ex-CEO of Morgan Stanley and Credit Suisse. John was on the board of directors of, he was an early board member of Lending Club. And when he was at Morgan Stanley, he was really involved in transaction activity in Mexico. So through that, we were able to convince him that what was happening in the United States in fintech was eventually going to arrive and expand to the emerging markets. So it was through finding investors that had some exposure in the United States. You know, one of our early investors was Victory Park Capital. We were their Chicago-based credit fund. We were their first equity investment in Mexico. And they had backed a lot of the peer-to-peer lending platforms early, early on in the fintech wave. And they saw that the trends that were happening in, in the US were eventually going to become present and grow in places like Latin America. So I think for us, it's been a really, really fascinating evolution. Uh, and you know, we've, uh, you know, we, you know, we raised our seed round in 2015 with groups like Victory Park and John Mack. We were broad having capital partners. We were their early investment, their first investment in the region. Then we worked with you know, a group called Elevar Equity, which has some experience in Latin America. And we basically just over time developed a more and more and more institutional capital base. Uh, you know, our Series B uh, was led by QED, which clearly has a, lot of, a large presence in the US, but also in Latin America and Kazakh Ventures. And then most recently, our Series, excuse me, our series A was led by QED and Kazakh, and our Series B was led by Goldman Sachs and Point72. And we were also their first investment in Mexico. So it's, you know, being, you know, differentiating yourself early on in our journey was such a critical piece to our success. We, we saw that, one, there was very, very few venture dollars coming into Mexico. But we also saw that there was very, very few companies that were being run in an institutional way that were actually capable to be recipients of that money. Our very simple view was if we can kind of arbitrage that and create an institutional venture ready business that in terms of governance and in terms of the way that we're looking at the market opportunity in terms of the management team, it was a great opportunity to be the first for many of these funds in the region. And it's so exciting because I do think that we've played a positive role in building the Mexican just tech ecosystem. And if you look at it today in terms of the number of companies, that are venture backed, it's exploded, particularly over the last 24 months. So it's been a journey and it's wonderful to see that, you know, success stories like Credit Justo are helping to drive more funding in the market. And now it's easier, I believe, for companies to raise capital. Certainly. And you were probably the first for some of these funds, but certainly not the last. Many of these funds have continued to invest in the country. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Now, Tell us about deciding where to focus, right? Because Justo uh, has a specific focus, but fintech is such a large landscape, right? How did you land on a specific strategy and how did you build the initial team? So our journey is kind of a confluence, a variety of different themes and timing and other pieces. So when in like 2013, 2014, just as we were, you know, I was finishing up my studies, as I mentioned, Alan was, you know, was still working. As I mentioned, we saw what was happening in the United States, but we also saw the challenges that a lot of the platforms in the US we thought were going to face. So 
acquisition costs were going up, uh, margins and spreads were coming down. It was becoming a much more competitive market. And basically, it was becoming very, very saturated. So, you know, I, I joke and I say like in the US, there's like a tech enabled small business lender on every corner. There's so many businesses that are going after, in many cases, a very similar market. And we just felt in many, you know, they were basically competing over pennies in terms of the margins. So we wanted to take the elements of what we liked from what was happening in the US and Europe, which is, you know, a lot of the technology stack that was being used and how they were applying technology and data science to a lot of these problems in terms of customer acquisition and underwriting to bring the institutional capital that gave these businesses in the US and Europe credibility, but go after markets where you had significantly lower credit penetration, significantly large untapped markets, and very limited competition. So that was our initial view is, let's take what we like about these markets that, we're, that we know and are more mature, and let's apply them to these geographies where, in many ways, you find enhancements that don't exist in the US. So we actually started off by doing, I remember, it sounds like very like MBA-like, but we, neither Alan or I have an MBA, and we said, look, let's look at the region. So we started with like the Southern Cone. We looked at Argentina and Brazil and Chile. We then looked at Peru and Colombia, then we worked our way up. Eventually, we arrived at you know Central America and Mexico. And at that point in time, we felt that the market that was most ripe and was most undeveloped, but yet had a sizable, addressable client base and opportunity was Mexico. It was clear to us out of that analysis that the low-hanging fruit was Mexico. Brazil was, in my mind, five to seven years more advanced than Mexico in terms of the entrepreneurial ecosystem. There was a lot more venture activity. There was a lot of sophisticated entrepreneurs. And it was just more competitive. Mexico uh, has half of the credit penetration that Brazil does, yet it has a tiny portion of capital. And at that point in time, back in you know, early 2015, it had just there was so much less activity there. So we said Mexico, apart from the fact that Alan was Mexican, really was the market that we thought was most interesting. So we said, Great. Let's, we may want to develop a pan-Latin American strategy, but Mexico is the starting point. So that's how we arrived on Mexico. It wasn't like, oh, let's do Mexico. You know, I'm not saying everything we've done has been systematic, but I think arriving at Mexico is one of the things that we approached in a more strategic way. We then shifted gears and said, okay, to answer your question, what is the strategy and the product that we want to go after? And, you know, I remember we spent, we looked at leasing, we looked at factoring, we looked at secured lending models, we looked at unsecured lending models, we looked at small business lending, we looked at credit cards, we looked at factoring, we looked at payday deduction lending. We, we, we did this pretty vast analysis and we came to the view and we formed the view that the market most needed a multi-product SME-oriented platform that really could solve the needs of small businesses in Mexico. It was a segment that I'm sure you've heard before was kind of like this missing middle where you had microfinance institutions like Compartamos and other, you know, basically microfinance emerged out of India and Mexico slash Latin America. So you had the base of the pyramid very well covered and then banks, which are mostly, you know, internationally owned and controlled, classic oligopoly, similar to Brazil, were really interested in corporate lending. So you had this really large 
missing middle or swath of the market, which was not was underattended or just not being attended at all. But we said, heck, if we can go after that and we can develop a strategy to own the small business segment and own the SME segment through a multi-product strategy, that for us was kind of the key to where we wanted to go. And that was our vision from the very beginning. And I think that we've largely executed on that in terms of developing an offering that we can really own the client and meet all of their financial needs. So that's kind of how we've evolved. Uh, And since that time, new companies have come into the market, but I think we've been able to show really solid growth, really solid credit performance and really solid underlying economics that we can actually build a robust, resilient business, even in the current environment that we're living in now. Yeah. Having worked at multiple banks covering Latin America, I can completely empathize with what you're mentioning. I mean, all the large banks are chasing the same 100 clients, but our frustration will always be there are so many creditworthy companies in the middle that we wish we could bank. I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad you're doing it. I'm glad you and others are doing it. And what about talent? One of the frustrations that we hear from entrepreneurs developing large companies in emerging markets is that there isn't always such a vast pool of talent as you would find in Silicon Valley, right? But at the same time, that also brings a lot of advantages because there's going to be less competition for you. How did you build that initial team and how have you grown it ever since? Yeah, so it's, I think, um, similar to our initial view of how do you leverage what we like about the local market and supplement that with what perhaps you can't find. So, you know, in the view, we, we saw what we liked in the United States. We tried to bring a lot of that to Mexico. A little bit of a similar thinking, I think, has gone into how we've built the composition of our team. So for me, it feels to me like we've kind of gone through three fairly distinct waves in our business. So we early on had, you know, a very young team that obviously was very, you know, it was appropriate for the stage that we were at. We then subsequently really upgraded that, you know, about 18 months after founding the business. And then more, and recently we've gone through kind of like a phase three, which is really experienced managers who have a track record of executing, but also really fit into the culture of a more tech-enabled uh, business that we're building. So in our case, we're about 250 people. You know, a year ago, we were about 100. So we've, you know, we've dramatically scaled the business, which is reflective of our overall growth. And it's a combination. It's, we have a lot of Americans, kind of expats. A lot of Mexicans is a great labor market in Mexico. And we have, you know, a combination of many other nationalities. So it's a very international group. And we are, if we can find local talent who lives in Mexico, that's obviously our priority. But we're also very open to bringing in people from other geographies. When we initially started recruiting from the U.S. was very, very hard. It was, you know, bringing people, as I'm sure you've heard from many other entrepreneurs, getting someone to move from San Francisco or New York or one of these other real hubs and getting them to move either individually with their family to relocate to Mexico. Do you have to make a fairly compelling pitch to them about why the upside makes sense as in commensurate with the risk that they would be taking? Uh, So I think we've done a really excellent job of bringing talent from these other geographies. And I would say it's getting easier. I think that, you know, it's definitely one of the more difficult and it's, I would categorize it as one of the challenges that emerging market and Latin businesses face just because there's not turnkey solutions for specific types of roles, but Latin America and particularly Mexico city 
is a location that people are excited about. You know, living costs are lower. There's, you know, immense, you know, cultural opportunities. And I think people, you know, now are excited about moving from San Francisco or New York or Chicago or Austin and relocating to Mexico and saying, hey, you know, this is a really exciting ecosystem, both culturally and from a technology point of view. And I want to spend time here. So I would say it's always been a pain point and it's always been difficult, particularly in the early years. I would say 2015, 2016, 2017, it was harder. As we've built out the business, it's become slightly easier. But I think on an everyday basis, it's definitely a challenge compared to, you know, being in the US or, you know, being in Europe. For some people, it's a differentiator. So for some people, they say, well, I've always wanted to, you know, I'm sick of the grind in San Francisco. I want to move and go on an adventure for three years, four years and move to you know a place like Mexico City. So I think every situation is a little bit different, but it's something we have to spend a lot of time on and it's something that I'm very involved in. Got it. And talking a little bit about, since we're talking about talent, culture is a topic that we talk about a lot on this podcast. What kind of culture have you created at Credit Justo? I think like the, I would say a couple elements to it, but the first thing is there's what we call hyper transparency and hyper communication. So those are things that culturally in Latin America sometimes work and sometimes don't work. So we, for us, we have basically like we've built our culture around this very rapid feedback loop where we think the most important thing is to be able to continuously and rapidly communicate and engage between both peers, but also between executives. So I think I would say like one of the defining factors of our organization is we think that transparency and speed of communication is what leads to success. And for some people, they love it and they thrive in it and other people don't love it and they don't thrive in it. So I think for us, we've built, I would say like a very, very high performing organization that is built around that premise. So, you know, it's not to say that, you know, we, don't give second and third and fourth chances to people. No, we're, you know, I think we are absolutely thinking about how can we build and cultivate and grow the best people. But the way that we do that, both at kind of a low, medium, and executive level, is making certain that feedback loop and that level of transparency is embodied at every level of the organization. And we think that creates a level of openness and it creates an ability for people to become better at what they do and really enables people to grow. We found that those individuals that are not capable of receiving and integrating feedback don't do well in our organization, but the people that are able to do that, they really flourish and they thrive. Uh, and the same, you know, we apply that same standard of, you know, feedback and transparency. It applies to myself, it applies to Alan, it applies to the whole executive team. It goes up and down and sideways. And for us, I really think it's, you know, built a culture of accountability that differentiates us and makes people really, it brings them a huge amount of job satisfaction because they become better at what they do. And so do we. So that's how I would describe, you know, clearly other factors that describe our culture. I think something that's, I would maybe view as slightly unique and something that we think has defined. And I think a lot of people actually come to us because they like that is specifically that element and that feedback loop that we, you know, really live by on a day-to-day basis. Talk a little bit about the elephant in the room, and that is, of course, the COVID-19 crisis. 
you mentioned a lot of your employees having to relocate to Mexico and having a, a Mexico-based team. These days, we're talking at a time where you know your employees could be almost anywhere in the world. What's your approach to this new reality and how has Credijusto performed during this time? So I think it's, I'll use the word I used earlier, it's multidimensional. So clearly, our first priority was the health and safety of our employees, their families, and our clients. So for us, clearly, that's above all else, the most important thing. So that meant be from a physical point of view, we needed to move people out of enclosed environments and get them working remotely. So that was a shift and a change that took time. But I think it also, I'm sure you've heard this from other entrepreneurs and other companies, it accelerated something that was probably inevitable. And I think that we've really shown that we can maintain productivity and maintain excellence, even in a remote work environment. So that's something that we had to do, that we successfully implemented and is working fairly well. And from a personal perspective, I'm very, very hands-on. I'm very like, I like to see people. I like to meet with them. Like we're very face-to-face. If you were to say like as second nature, you know, what do you feel most comfortable with? I would say for much of our team, we thrive on that personal engagement. And I think that that relates a little bit to the cultural elements that I mentioned about in terms of like, you know, wanting to give feedback and really wanting to work with people and having a really high level of transparency in the communication. So things are working, you know, there's a high level of productivity, but I think there's definitely like an urge and a desire to get people back together. So I think that, you know, I would say there's definitely a level of frustration where people are like, I want to see my colleagues. I want to be able to engage with people. I really want to kind of get back to the office. And that's one of the challenges that were mid to late March, we went fully remote. And that's kind of around the time when most companies did so in Mexico, you know, we're many months into this. And I think that there is definitely, you know, a strain that's happening, but it's natural, I think. And it's something that is something that we're tracking. So we, for us, you know, are monitoring that However, clearly the most important thing is making sure that everyone is safe because that's the most important thing. In terms of the business, for us, it's a really unique opportunity. We built our lending and credit models around a concept of asset-backed secured lending. So the question I remember getting from every investor in 2015, 2016, 2017 is, David, you've started this business. You know, you and Alan have started this business in totally a bull market post to 08, 09. How are these credit models and how is this business going to withstand a credit down cycle, which is inevitable at some point? No one knew when or how it would occur. And they were comparing us to these algorithm-based black box lending models. And one of the early parts of our business model was, okay, there's an abundance of available collateral in the Mexican market, both in terms of real estate, as well as equipment, we're going to leverage that as a critical component to our credit underwriting. And we've been really, really successful at taking very offline, high-touch lending products and bringing them into a technology ecosystem such that they can scale really rapidly. And part of it was also, we approached this very much from a credit perspective early on. And for us, one of the most important outcomes of this crisis has been to demonstrate the strength of our credit performance in the current environment. People hear small business, credit, the immediate kind of connects the dots is, oh, you must be having issues. I can say, you know, 
we're by no means waving the victory flag because we're still, you know, maybe halfway through this, but our business model has shown a remarkable ability and a remarkable resilience in this current environment. And I think it's such an important piece of proving out that the company that we've built in Credit Hus was an enterprise can thrive when things are really good economically, but also both weather the storm and grow in environments just like we're living right now, because COVID is what we're dealing with today. Whether it's in two or five or 10 years, there's going to be some other economic movement or shift that will come that could affect credit quality. So for us, we're seeing rapid demands, rapid increases in demands for credit, but also really strong credit performance from our existing borrowers, which gives us the opportunity and the comfort to say, okay, we're willing to start to extend and grow and rapidly scale and be a solution for small businesses in the current environment. Because you know, in the next one, two, three, four months, without question, credit demand is going to grow as businesses start to have greater line of sight post-COVID in terms of what the world is going to look like. That's truly remarkable. And I'm, I'm sure a lot of listeners will, will be interested in, in, that, uh, in that answer, right? And it's in times like this where a company like Rejusto can actually perform and, and grow, right? Come out of this crisis even stronger. That's, um, that's really fascinating. Now, talking a little bit about the Mexican ecosystem, the, the fintech ecosystem, right? As you mentioned, you, you're part of the first wave, but there have been many other waves or many other companies ever since. And a lot of it has been fueled by this fintech law that was passed by the Mexican government. How's your relationship with the Mexican regulator? And what's your take on the overall environment? Yeah, so first thing is, I think, the push from the Mexican regulator to address fintech in a very proactive rather than reactive way, I think is fantastic. So we've seen over the last, you know, the last few years that there was without question, you know, a proactive focus, which is great because it starts to create clarity and visibility, which is the most important thing for an entrepreneur. If you have a sense of, from a regulatory perspective, what's happening above all else, that's priority number one. So in our case, uh, we directly have not been that either positively or negatively affected or impacted by the fintech law, partially because the focus of the fintech law is very much based on you know, peer-to-peer payments and it's very based on payment networks and payment rails and things of that nature. So as a direct lender and as a credit platform, the regulatory regime was already fairly robust pre-fintech law. So in our specific case, it hasn't either positively or negatively changed a tremendous amount of what we've done or what we do. You know, we are in a semi-regulated environment as a group that does credit, and we've always tried to implement best practices and kind of be ahead of what was happening in the market. However, for a lot of the, particularly the newer companies, I think is something that's really important. The newer payments platforms and the folk and the groups kind of like the more like neobank like models, which are kind of API driven for those groups, I think it's been something that they've without question had to navigate. So directly as it relates to Credit Justo, I would say fairly limited day-to-day change as a result of it. 
But for the larger ecosystem, I think it's definitely been something that companies need to pay attention to. And it's actually an important part of their business plan in terms of compliance as it relates to the regulatory environment that's being developed in Mexico. Understood. So tell us a little bit about your vision for the road ahead for Houston. What's in the works for the coming years? So we're one continuing to implement and execute upon our multi-product vision for the business. Uh, you know, we have term loans and credit lines. We have a leasing business. We're launching a credit card at the end of this year, specifically for small businesses. So we're really creating a multi-product ecosystem for a small business. And I think without question, you know, you've, I think there are many global examples of how those multi-product ecosystems evolve. And our plan is just to continue to execute on our product development roadmap and to continue to expand that ecosystem and really do everything that we can to become the primary relationship and the primary provider of credit and the primary financial provider for the different SMEs that we work with. And that means growing the number of services. It means both doing lending products as well as non-lending products. And it really means continuing to position ourselves as a leading SME provider in our market segment. And I think for us, it's a, a really exciting, interesting road ahead. And there's a much more work to be done. But we think that we're, we're uniquely positioned given the capital base, given the... I haven't really mentioned this a lot, but I think we have, I think the most mature capital market strategy. We were Goldman Sachs' first investment on the debt side. We were Credit Suisse US. We were their first investment on the debt side. We work with a number of local funds in Mexico where they're only fintech investments. So I think we've created a funding model that is really, really sophisticated and advanced, I think, for the size of business that we have. And the idea is that you can continue to optimize and grow that while also offering increasingly comprehensive set of products and services that are credit and non-credit through the small business space. And to me, that is an asset that is going to become very, very valuable if we can really dominate that market segment. So yeah, it's really excited about next steps and continuing to kind of deliver on what we've built and continue to create the team that's capable of executing. I'm curious, do you securitize your debt? It's not something that we've done yet, but I can tell you as an example, Credit Suisse, the group from Credit Suisse that invested in us is the U.S. securitization team. So you can imagine why would a U.S. securitization team invest in a Mexican fintech platform unless they think that there's a really interesting cross-border capital markets play there. So I think that we are uniquely positioned to do, I would say, probably one of the first fintech-based securitizations in our market. Also, given just the nature of our products, which are asset-backed, I think that the public markets are going to be very positively receive those types of assets. David, we have quite a few listeners who are either current entrepreneurs, but also aspiring founders. You have had a, a fantastic journey so far as uh, the leader, as one of the two leaders of a large startup. was hoping you could share some lessons and, and reflections, not just as an entrepreneur, but also as an entrepreneur in an emerging market, in, in a market like Mexico. There's, so there's been a lot of learnings that I think we've, that Alan and I have had over five plus years. I think when asked this question, I think there's one thing that comes to mind first, and maybe I'll focus on that, which is when had Alan and I 
built an early founding team that was stronger on the commercial side and the tech side, I think we would be two years probably ahead of where we are today. So I think early on, so a lot of entrepreneurs bring a specific skill set to the table. In our case, Alan had more of a credit finance background. And in my case, I had, I would say, more of the external capital market side, which is, I think, what, what, what interests me most. We both lacked specifically a tech and a commercial sales background. And I think one of the early mistakes that we made is had we brought on peers and co founders early that had real deep documented experience on the commercial side and on the tech side, like candidly, we like, I think we could have saved a couple of years. So we went through so many learnings and we made so many early mistakes on those two pillars, which are critical to these businesses. So one of the very like specific, concrete, actionable pieces of advice that I would give is it's really important to map out, you know, as you create a founding team, where your strengths lie and where the weaknesses or the holes are and not be afraid to bring on people really early, even if it means more of a partnership status, because at the end of the day, the time that you're going to save in terms of errors and mistakes is significant. And I'm not talking like six months. I'm talking like, you know, like, you know, one, two and a half, you know, one, one and a half, two years. So we've figured it out finally. And now we have, you know, for the last, I don't know, year or two, we've had the right people and really have, I think, one of the most robust management teams in our market. But it wasn't like that forever. And if we had approached it with a different mindset from the beginning, I think the business would be more mature today than it even is now. Well, David, before we go, we always like to ask all of our guests a little bit about their personal side and their hobbies. I'm sure you you spend some time outside of Crejusto. I'm curious to to know about some of those hobbies. Sure. Yeah. I, you know, I'm sure you get this from a lot of people, but I, you know, I love, you know, I love being outside. So, you know, the obvious, you know, cycling and skiing is something that I love. My, I come from a family of artists. So actually one of my early hobbies is I love to weld, which is a, you know, kind of a random, you know, random fun hobby that I've done kind of, you know, throughout, you know, since kind of my teenage years. So yeah, I try to balance, you know, kind of some of the more creative sides and creative interests with things like, you know, being outdoors and the things I enjoy most, given that I come from a cold climate, which is not where I live now is I love snow and I love skiing, which is a little hard to find in Mexico. Mm-hmm. And then also I've always, you know, been a, been a big cyclist. So anyway, those are the non credit justo activities that I find myself involved in. And it's obviously important to try to balance those things, but definitely in recent years, I've, most of my time has been on the entrepreneurial side, but it's important as I've realized particularly recently to strike a balance, uh, you know, between the two. Our balance these days. Well, David or David, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a treat. We uh, really enjoyed learning about you and then we're excited about the future of Kadehusta, which uh, I'm sure it's gonna, it's gonna continue outperforming. Wonderful. Well, thanks for having me and look forward to keeping in touch with, you know, the Wharton FinTech group. And yeah, I've been really impressed with your other participants. So thank you very much for having me and hope everyone stays safe. Thank you. And you're always welcome to join us on campus after this pandemic. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton Fintech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.